Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. You yourselves also know Him, being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he Foreseeing this, spoke concerning this resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God is raised up, of which we're all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, him, he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Father, this morning, what a powerful passage of Scripture. And as we open it to look into it, Father, let our hearts and minds be Focus solely upon you and Jesus Christ. Let us this morning see you in all of your glory. Do that by making very little of me and very much of you, that you may be glorified in the hearts and minds and in this place today. This we pray in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we looked at the second part of uh, preaching leads to persuasion as I, as I titled this section of, of messages as we go through this mini-series within Acts. We have seen as we've gone through this the, the example, the example of Peter, uh, the preacher, the, most, the, the least likely one to be the expositor of the message because of his past failures and, and the things that he had done. And, and we had also seen the example of the Holy Spirit who had just been poured out on them. And, and he was the one who was promised and he was the one who had come. And they were right at that moment in the and he was the one who was now in power and Peter to stand before this group and, and to preach. And last week we, we started our, our look at this exposition, so to speak, this exposition of, of this part of the, the passage. And we saw Peter standing and he was standing before this, this gathered crowd and he was proclaiming the word. And, and he started, if you remember from last week, right where they knew what was going on. He started with the things that they understood and knew to be true. He started with the life of, of Jesus, and he, and he went through the miracles that he worked. He moved from there to the death of Jesus that they all had seen, and, 
And he told them about it being the preordained plan of God, and it was carried out by their hands, by the hands of the Romans and the Jews. So he started with the things that they, they knew. Peter's made the point that Jesus was this Messiah that they had been looking for. And he's, he's driven this home to them. And, and he said that Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of those prophecies of the Old Testament. If you remember, he, he's constantly reaching back, reaching back and pulling out the, the truths that they've held, the, the scriptures they've held dear to themselves, and using those scriptures to point them to this, this Jesus. He's, he's told them that Jesus had come and he performed the works of God, as it says, and he had done it in their midst. And if you remember, he said he didn't just do it as, as just miracles because he, he felt uh, sorry for, for folks. He, he didn't just do it for the wonderment they had of it, but he did it as a sign. Those miracles, as I said to the kids this morning, were done as a sign to, to point them to God. It wasn't that he didn't didn't want them to be whole and their bodies to, to be complete. It wasn't that he didn't want their bellies to be filled, but that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to be God with us. And, and those things just pointed to him. And, and that's that's what Peter had been telling him. And for for these things, he he tells him, he just lays it right at their feet. He says, For these things, and and by our sins, he was nailed to a cross. He said he came to do these things, and what was your response? He nailed him to a cross. He said that was your response. He didn't hold back. He threw the burden of what had happened at their feet. Yes, God had planned that this would be how he would save humanity, but man had willingly participated by sinning. There's no way around it. Peter just throws it at their feet, and, and that's where we ended last week. The fact that this nailing of Jesus to the cross, it might as well have been us with nails in our hands and hammers in our hands driving those through his hands and his feet to the cross because we have sinned. We have sinned and it was because of our sin that he hung on a cross and died. And, and that's where we walked away from this passage last week. Thank God that's not the end of the passage. Thank God that's not the end. For oh, What a horrible, what a horrible thing to, to call yourself a Christian if it ends in a man hanging on a cross. <laughs> Did. See, he picks up there. Now Peter turns to the second part of his exposition, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, there's a hinge point. There's a hinge point that makes us different from all other religions. As a matter of fact, I befriended a fellow recently. He's a Muslim uh, of the Islamic faith. And a very nice gentleman. I was talking to him recently. He knows I'm a pastor. And we were discussing some things recently, and he said, You know, pastor, our religions are very similar. And he goes through and he says, you know, there's only really one difference. We don't believe Jesus was God. I looked him in the eye and said, that's a big difference that will cost you for all of eternity. Because that's the difference. You see, even though he has a figure that's, that's head over the religion, so to speak, as, as we have Jesus as the head of ours, they also have a figure that's over as, as well as Buddhists do and others, but there is one major difference. <laughs> You can go visit their graves and see their bones. You go look in the grave of Jesus and it is empty. It is empty. You see, there is a difference in our religions, in our faith. 
If you look at verse 24, in verse 24 in that passage I just read, picking up where we left off last week, he says this, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's where we'll pick up today. Because that's where he turned from the point of them hanging him on a cross to, you know what? (laughs) Let's just be glad God didn't step away at that point. Keep in mind, keep in mind to set the point for you. Why were they gathered in, in Jerusalem? Why, why had they come? Why had they showed up at this place? See, it was Passover time, it, it just shortly thereafter. And they had showed up for the Passover. They had come to the town to celebrate Passover as was prescribed for them to do. And, and they came. And if you remember the Passover feast, it was this, this remembrance, this remembrance of God's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. You remember the story back in Exodus 12. We've talked about it before back in Exodus 12. We won't read it today. It is a lengthy passage. But let me give you the highlights so we can set our minds where these people are in their particular life at this moment. Exodus 12 gives us the story of the institution of uh, the Passover. If you remember Moses and and the people of Israel, Moses and the people of Israel were being held in in this bondage in in Egypt. They were basically slave labor, if you remember. They they were held there in Egypt. And, And God, he had come and he had spoken to Moses. He had spoken to Moses. He told him, he said, go to Pharaoh. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. If you remember, he had gone and done that. He had gone and said, let my people go. But as a result of Pharaoh's hardened heart, he denied the request. He denied the request, as a matter of fact, nine times up until this point of Exodus 12. Nine times he had gone and said, let my people go. It didn't happen. Nine plagues had come. You remember the plagues, the blood, the water, the frogs, just the different things that had come. Trying to, trying to make Pharaoh understand, you're, you're not really in charge. Well, after the ninth plague, that's where we come into Exodus 12. God speaks to Moses in Exodus 12, and he says, Moses, get ready. Get ready. You're getting ready to go. You're getting ready to go, and the people are going to go with you. You're getting ready to go out of here. That's, that's where this 10th plague, so to speak, comes in. And that's where Pharaoh will let his people go, Moses' people go. He tells Moses, he says, go, have all the men of Israel, have all the men of Israel take a lamb for himself for, and for his family on the 10th day of the month. Take, take this lamb. Take this lamb into your house. It needs to be a lamb, it says in the fifth verse, I think it is of Exodus 12. It's a, a lamb without blemish. It's the best of the best. Get, get the best lamb. Matter of fact, he even says if your household's too small to consume all the lamb, join in with your neighbor. But, the, but get a lamb. Bring, bring this lamb into your home. And he tells us in verse 6, it's not until the 14th day of the month that you are to kill this lamb. So for several days, the lamb lives with the family as part of the family there it, it becomes a pet, so to speak, for the kids. It becomes a normal part of their household. He says on that on that fourteenth day at twilight you are to kill the lamb. You are to kill the lamb. He says, then you are to take some of the blood from the lamb that is slain, and you are to place it on the doorpost and the lintel of your home. Right out front. Place it right. Could you imagine? Could you imagine those who didn't know what was being done walking past going, what are, what, what is wrong with those Jews? <laughs> They're smearing blood on the front of their house. It, it wasn't a private thing. It was a very public thing that they were doing on the front door, oh, <laughs> the doorposts and, and the lintel. 
Then it says, then it says they are to eat that lamb. They're to roast it. It gives very specific instructions about roasting it. They're to, to eat it with unleavened bread, and they're, they're to take in bitter herbs. And we know we've been through that, that Passover scenario. The unleavened bread meant not taking anything of the world. It symbolized leaving those things of the world behind, the leaven being the sin, as it's mentioned in the Bible some. And, and then it's talking about the bitter herbs. as it, That is to become a remembrance of all that bitterness they've been through in this bondage scenario. But, but they're to do that at this first Passover and it's kind of interesting because in verse 11 he says then, you're to do this with a belt on your waist, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. It says you're, you're to eat it with haste. And he goes on to say in verse 11, it's the Lord's Passover. So you see the picture there of Moses, the men, the families, gathering taking in a lamb, slaying the lamb on the 14th, painting the doorposts and lintel of their homes, being fully dressed as they gathered around to eat, right to the point of holding the staff that was used for support and protection in their hand. <laughs> kind of a funny way to eat dinner, isn't it? It would be like saying, hey, we're going to stop for dinner, but make sure you dress up in your Sunday best, and you've got to hold your Bible in one hand while you eat with the other because you just never know when it's going to be time to go. So he's got them in this position. And it says, that night. That night, the death angel was to pass over, was to pass over. And we know what was going to happen. The firstborn of all were going to die in the land. But he says in verse 13 of that Exodus 12 passage, it says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, a sign. Remember how we talked about Jesus and his miracles bringing wonderment and being a sign of something? This Passover, this blood on the doorpost and the lintel was to be a sign on the houses where you are. And God said, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That, that death angel will pass over you. And the plague should not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He goes on to say in that 14th verse, so this day shall be to you a memorial remembrance and honoring. It says, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So that's where this group stood. Those that were, were gathered there in, in Jerusalem had come for this celebration. What were they celebrating? God allowing life and letting death pass over them. Rescuing them from death, from bondage, setting them free, giving them life. And it was done through a sacrifice. They still gathered together for this Passover, and the sacrifice represented exactly what it represented for them back in that passage in Exodus. God's mercy, God's graciousness, God's passing over them with death and giving them life. Let's fast forward 50 days from this Passover because that's where we stand in this passage, which was celebration of the, the first fruits. It was the first fruits, which was connected with that Passover. It was the Feast of Weeks, this Feast of Weeks that they, they were doing. And the Feast of Weeks was a feast for Pentecost. It was, it was for this Pentecost, this 50-day celebration after Passover. It was the first fruits feast, this, this first fruits, where they could celebrate what, what God had blessed them with by, by giving of the first fruits. It was a harvest time. It was a, a time that they could just celebrate God. And his faithfulness. And isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit would come on the day of the celebration of the first fruits? 
He came as the first fruits of the believer's inheritance, it says in the Bible. The first fruits of the believer's inheritance. The Bible is so connected. You can't take any page out or you lose the whole story. But he says he comes as, as the first fruits. And isn't it fitting that Peter would be standing before the first fruits attendees and telling them about their spiritual first fruit? See, they had come with a physical first fruit to the feast. Now Peter stands before them and says, There's a spiritual first fruit. That's what he's telling them in the passage in Acts. He's taken the entire feast that they're doing and he's putting it to a spiritual light. Which, by the way, the feast from the Old Testament, raw for what reason? To point to Jesus. The feast in and of themselves were nothing except a sign to point to Jesus. Peter is going to take the first fruits feast they had been celebrating forever and he's going to put it to a pointing to Jesus. A pointing to Jesus. Many times, many times they had sacrificed the lamb at Passover. Many times they had brought their first fruits from harvest to this first fruits feast to, to give to God. But never, never had the sacrifice they had brought got up from the altar. <laughs> Never had the sacrifice got up from the altar and became the first fruits. Not until Jesus. See, not until Jesus had the sacrifice that was just given got up. And that's what he's getting ready to point out to them. And the point that Peter's going to drive home to them and to us is that Jesus is the first fruit of our salvation. Our guarantee. Our guarantee of inheritance. The reason we know we can be saved and the reason we know we have eternal life is because of Jesus. And that's the point he's about to drive home. He is the reason that they can have eternal life and that we can have eternal life. There is no other reason. Without Jesus coming off of the cross and rising from the dead, there would be no eternal life. And what he's driving home to them is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. As a matter of fact, you hung him upon a cross and killed him, but God didn't get out of the healing business, the raising business. He raised Jesus from the dead so that you could be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. Matter of fact, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats... <laughs> can take away sins. All those sacrifices of bulls and goats was never possible that they could take away sins. It was only possible that they could point the hearts of those people doing that towards the only sacrifice that mattered, Jesus Christ. All the sacrifices they were ever done were not capable of forgiving their sins for all of eternity. The sacrifice were done to point to Jesus. And Peter, Peter here is about to hit them with the proof that Jesus' sacrifice on that cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for their sins and for our sins. He's about to draw the bow back and hit the bullseye dead center. He starts with who executed the plan. I find it interesting that he'd already told them in that 23rd verse that that Jesus had been delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He's already set up God's sovereignty in this whole scene of, of Jesus' death. He'd also already told them that it was by their lawless hands that 
They crucified him and put him to death. He, he placed man's responsibility right next to God's sovereign plan. He says, God had a plan that this is the way that, that I will pay for your sins. But man's responsibility brought them to the game. And their sin was what nailed him to a cross. Their sin and ours. And now Peter is going to tell them who executed this plan for eternal salvation. He says in verse 24, whom God raised See, it's important to understand God had a plan for him to go to the cross, but it was the power of God that raised him from the dead. It's the power of God that raised him from the dead. He makes sure there's no mistaking who it is that decided what the plan was and who it was that was going to execute that plan, and it was God. We have to remember <laughs> salvation. <laughs> salvation did the come to us because it was a right that we have. You hear everyone talking about their rights and they have the right for this and the right for that. Salvation didn't come for us because we have a right to be saved. Salvation didn't come because God owed it to us. Salvation did not come because we did anything to deserve it or earn it. Salvation came because God decided to provide salvation for us. You see that all the way in the Old Testament when there's an ark built and he makes the decision to save one family, that life might go on and destroy the rest. You see it in the picture of a father goes to a mountain with his only son and he provides salvation in a ram. You see the picture of God's decision for salvation for us painted all through Scripture. And the final brushstroke is the face of his son, Jesus Christ. In this picture of salvation, so Peter tells him who executed the plan. He says, make no mistake about it. God executed this plan. Then he tells him what the plan is. And in the second part of, of verse 24, he says, having loosed the pains of death. Having loosed the pains of death. God had a plan for something new to be seen. That's what he's talking about here because the word that he uses there for this, this pains is the word odinous. Odinous, which is actually a word that's better translated birth pains. Birth pains. We all know that delivery has its birth pains. Now, men, we all say yes because we've seen it. All the women who have ever had a child can testify that birth is, is painful. I could testify because I think it was our second child. As I was being the, the husband I was supposed to be and wipe Wendy's brow and the sweat off, she had a, a contraction, I guess it was called, where the pain comes really stoutly. And as I reached over to wipe her brow, she decided to latch down on my hand and bite me. And, and I do at the moment, whew, she gave me a little taste of that pain. That was still nothing compared to the pain that she was going through to, to have a child. So the question arises, why then would a woman want to endure what she knows is going to be painful? Why would she want to endure that to have a child? It's because of the glorious, never-before-seen child that will be a result of that pain. It's because of something new. It's because of something coming forth and the opposite of that pain that... It's never been seen before. She knows that the pain is temporary, but the result is going to be glorious. See, that's what he's saying here. Peter's telling those that were gathered, those gathered that never again will death, never again will death be looked at the same. Never again will the end of life be looked at the same because of this Jesus. Death will now be seen as temporary. Temporary with a glorious outcome. 
There'll be this glorious outcome. That's why Paul, that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul wrote, death, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? That's why he could write and say, death, what have you got for me? He said, where's your victory over me? For those who believe in the risen Christ, death has no victory. Death has no victory of you. And even though physical death has its sorrows, we see it as temporary. We see it as temporary. Paul even wrote, Paul even wrote in 1 Thessalonians, I believe it was 1 Thessalonians, somewhere around the 4th or 5th chapter. Around the 4th, 5th chapter, he says, but I don't want, I don't want you to be ignorant. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus, if we believe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again, even so, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He says, Peter here says that he's loosed the pains of death. Paul reiterates in his writing, death no longer seems to be the end for us. We realize, we realize because of this Jesus, death, it has no victory. We realize because of this Jesus, we can sorrow at the loss, but we have the hope that there will be eternal life forever. We'll be joined together again. And we know that why? Because God raised him up. You see, life has hope, and his name is Jesus. Life has hope, and his name is Jesus. Peter says in the last part of that 24th verse, in the last part he says, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It wasn't even possible. Can you imagine Satan? Can you imagine Satan as Jesus is nailed to the cross? Satan and his demons say, we got him. We got him. We got him right where we want him. We have won. They pull his dead body down and they stick him in a tomb. And three days later, you see Satan. What happened? What happened? We had him. Who let him go? It was never possible. It was never possible that the man hanging on that cross named Jesus Christ, once he was placed in a tomb, would ever stay there. It was not possible. It was not in God's plan. It was not possible that death could ever hold on to Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Almighty God. The same God who spoke and the stars appeared in the heavens. The same God who said, sees Stop right here. The same God who said mountains rise from the flat land. The same God who says, son, come up in the east every day. Moon, reflect the light of the sun at night. The same God who breathed breath, who breathed breath into the body of Adam. The same God said, death, you can't have my son. It raised him from the dead. This same God raised him by his power. The same power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that showed up at Pentecost. The same power that filled those gathered in that upper room. And church, 
It's the same power that dwells in you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The force behind all that God does. And it's, it's that power that raised the body of God's Son from the dead. Peter reminds him that it's in God's plan and God has the power to fulfill his plan. Here's the beauty of Peter's message. The exposition of Peter's message turns then to his support. His support from Scripture. His support from Scripture. Now Peter supports his exposition with a prophecy from Scripture by one person that the Jews held at high esteem. Some man named David. King David. King David. In verses 25 through 28, he he repeats these things that, that David had prophesied, these things that he had written. He starts off saying, David told you about this. Whenever he says in verse 25, for David says concerning him, the capital H in him lets us know he's talking about Jesus. Who is this David? This David to bring you up to steam is the second king of Israel. He's the second king of Israel. He was held in high regards as a leader over Israel. He was known to be a man of God. Matter of fact, the Bible itself says he was a man after God's own heart. So when they thought about this David, it was more than just a king. It was this godly leader. They thought about this man that was close to God. So when they, when they see things that David had written, they were important to them. Peter knows this. So Peter takes him to Psalm 16. That's where this is from, by the way. Psalm chapter 16. And he quotes what David wrote in that psalm. And it's common Old Testament practice. When you see something in the psalms or something in Scripture written in the first person, it's the Lord speaking. It is the Lord speaking. And that's why they call this Psalm 16 a messianic prophecy or a messianic psalm. It starts in verse 25 with the key. It says this, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. I It would be capitalized there whether it was Jesus or not. But in this case, we know that this is David speaking in the first person. So it's it's a messianic psalm, the messianic psalm, the messianic part of that being Jesus. And Jesus says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. The reason Jesus could see the pain of death, as we talked about loosing this pain of death, the reason he could see the pain of death as temporary is that his eyes weren't on the pain. His eyes weren't on his physical being. Where was his eyes? His his eyes was on the Lord, whose face was always before them, his Lord, the Father. He always focused on that. His his focus throughout all that he endured was on God and God's will for his life. That's why he said he freely gave up that which he had in heaven and came. And he says, all things that I do, I do at the direction of my Father. He said, all things. When he made a decision to walk on water, when he made a decision to turn a few fish and some loaves into a meal, when he made a decision to raise Lazarus from the dead, none of those were his decisions. He said, those decisions are God's. I do what God says do. What you see me do is what God says for me to do. So he endured. He was able to endure. How was he able to endure? He says, he says there in the second part, uh, I, saw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand. Here's what he knew. He knew that God was always with him. And because God was always with him, he goes on to say uh, that I may not be shaken. Jesus himself knew that if he was doing that, which God had instructed him to do, that God would always be with him. And anywhere God was, there was nothing to fear. 
There was nothing to fear. It would do us good to remember that anywhere God tells us to go, we don't go alone. We don't go alone, and there's nothing to fear. God, in all of his power, even the power that raised Jesus from the dead, is with us. Aren't you glad that he promises he's always with us? And because of Jesus' confidence in the Father, he goes on to say in verse 26, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Remember, he's writing this looking at the cross. <laughs> looking at the cross. Even facing the cross, Jesus did it with joy. Could you imagine? He faced the cross with joy. Was it because he didn't know what was about to happen? No. <laughs> Anyone living at that time knew what the cross meant. We today wear crosses around our neck as pieces of jewelry. It would be no different if you decided to hang an electric chair around your neck today. Because the cross was an instrument of torture and death. That's all it was. He knew. He knew what the cross held. But if you remember in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 2, it says... Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He went to the cross with joy. How could he endure the cross with joy? Second part of verse 26 says, And my tongue was glad, it says, And moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. The word translated rest there is actually a word that is translated in other places as abide or dwell. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for it that was transliterated in the Greek was used to talk about setting up of the tent. Relate that to what it says our body is. The tent, the tabernacle, this, this flesh. He was, he was saying that his body... He knew his body was going to dwell again, for his tent was going to be set up. He knew that he would be raised. And how could he have this confidence? It says in verse 27, For you will not leave my soul in Hades. <laughs> wow, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The word Hades here is not the actual literal word for hell in this particular usage. It's, it's the abode of the dead. It's actually the graveyard is, is a better way for it to be translated in this particular case. And Jesus knew God the Father would not leave his body in death. He also knew that his body, even though it would be put into a grave, would never see corruption. And in fact, his body was there for three days and did not see corruption. It did not. And his confidence came from the knowledge that he would rise from the dead. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life or the paths of life. You have made known to me the paths of life. Jesus knew that God would raise him from the dead. How do we know that Jesus knew this? Remember the things that he said in his ministry and in John, he said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And in Matthew, he says, for as Jonah was in the uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He knew. He already knew that this was what was going to happen. Jesus had prophesied that which God had told him, that he would rise again the third day. And Jesus had complete faith 
in what God the Father said. Complete face. Even facing the cross, he knew the pain of the cross would lead to the rising three days later. The birth pain of the death on the cross would lead to the glorious resurrection three days later. See the connection? See the connection? Now many who listened to Peter that day preaching Acts, they, they would have been appalled at what Peter was saying. They, they looked at King David as someone special. They, they would have been appalled that he would, he would have the nerve to say that David was writing about Jesus? David surely was writing about himself. They, they would say this, this psalm's about, about David. <laughs> That's what Peter addresses to them next. He, he reads that psalm to him, and, and he says, here's the psalm. And he says, I know what you're thinking. And his mind is going, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking David wrote this about himself. You're, you're, you're seeing David on a pedestal. You, you think the Psalm 16 is about David, but look what he says in the 29th verse. <laughs> Men and brethren, since you're already thinking about it, <laughs> let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. See the position that they stuck this David in? That he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Peter strikes a blow at the heart of patriarchal worship in the Jewish community. In that community, worshiping those who have gone before that they see special. He reminds that this great King David that you think so much of, uh, King David's dead. Not only is King David dead, King David's buried. Not only is King David buried, but if you want to go to his tomb, he's still there. He says, this, this great King David, he's dead, buried, and in a tomb. Peter's telling them that David can't give you life. David couldn't even conquer death for himself to give himself life. How could he give you life? And now he points them to what David the great king said about Christ in relation to that passage in Psalm 16, in verse 30. In verse 30, he says, Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the first, uh, of, uh, oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. See, David had been told that coming through his lineage would be the Messiah. Remember the start of Matthew when it lists the genealogy. Remember the start. There's a reason that it reaches back and comes through King David. It's proof positive that this, that David was, was told by God, was true. And he's pointed to that here and he says, Remember remember that David knew about this oath. This oath. Peter reminds him that David prophesied of what God had promised him. And what was the promise? that from his lineage would come the one who would occupy the throne. But he wasn't talking about the throne in David's house. He was talking about the throne in God's house. Peter finished his scriptural support for his exposition by making a reference to that Psalm 16.10 passage. That Psalm 16.10 passage when he says, He foreseen, in verse 31, He foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. Peter says, that psalm I just reminded you of, 
because David saw it through the oath that was given to him and was prophesying. He says this, this David was speaking concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what was he speaking concerning it? That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, what makes us different is that we worship a living Savior. A living Savior. It is the hinge point of all Christianity. Without a risen Savior, there is no eternal life. And what he's telling them here is even David, this king that you hold in such high esteem when he was writing this, was speaking of this Christ that God preordained would come and that you nailed to a cross. Could you imagine? They were just told that the man just a short time earlier that they had screamed crucify him, spit upon him, hung him on a cross. David said was supposed to sit on the throne. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the thoughts running through their head? He was telling them, you, with your own hands, killed the king. And there they stood. Peter, he makes a solid point from Scripture that God's plan of redemption centered on the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Peter makes this argument for the resurrection of Christ as being the plan of God. It was fulfilled by the power of God, and it was foretold by the Word of God. See how he exposits this sermon to them. But then he does one more thing very quickly. He gives them a witness. This is where you and I come in. I, I think we believe that God had a plan, a plan of salvation, because it's, it's spelled out clearly in Scripture. You'd be blind not to see it as far as I'm concerned. We also know that it's only the power of God that can fulfill that plan of salvation in anyone's heart and life. Man has no ability of his own to save himself. It must be the power of God. And we know all this because it's been prophesied through the Word. How will those, how will those who don't know come to know? Here's where Peter jumps in. With both feet, right where we should be. In Acts 2.32, Acts 2.32, he says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know what you're a witness of? A risen Savior. You're a witness of a living, risen Savior. You're a witness of that because of the power in your life, the power to save you from your sin, the power to equip you to do the things that you do, the power that blesses you every day in life. You're a witness. Just as he said, you know that Jesus, that Jesus that you killed and God raised from the dead? You're looking at a man who's seen. And if you remember, as we started this passage, it says the other 11 had stood with Peter as he was preaching. I can imagine as Peter said that Jesus that God raised from the dead, he said, we're all witnesses. We've seen him. We've seen him. Then he makes it personal for them. He moves from we've seen him to make it a personal in verse 33 when he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. <laughs> Remember when we started chapter 2. He said in verses 5 and 6 that those who were dwelling there gathered together because of this sound and this sight. What was the sound? It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind with nothing moving. 
and it was the sight of tongues of fire landing on those who were sitting in the room. We come to know that as the filling of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Remember, that's what drew the crowd that now stood in front of Peter. They came because of this filling of the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to bring it full circle for them. (laughs) He says, that which you've come to see is only possible because this Jesus you have killed has risen from the dead and gone back to the Father. He brings it full circle. He now makes it personal for them. And this is where Peter really hits them in the heart in that 34th and 35th verse. He reaches back to David when he says, For David did not ascend unto the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter goes straight for the juggler vein with them on this one. He tells them this King David that they hold in such high level is nothing compared to Jesus. This King David, as great as he may be as a man, is nothing. That even David said that Jesus would one day be the king. That Jesus was one sitting in the seat of power and authority. That Jesus of Nazareth, as they said hatefully, that they hated so much they put him to death, would have his enemies be his footstool. This Jesus who is king, who is Lord, who is with God, is there because God planned it that way. See, in verse 36, and he says this, Therefore, with all of this said, with all of this understanding, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter wanted to make sure there was no doubt in anybody's mind as to who this Jesus really is. Jesus who God attested as Messiah. How did he do that? He was uh, signified, as he say, or signified by his miracles, his wonders and signs. He was validated by his life, by his death, and by his burial, and by his resurrection. He was exalted to go sit at the right hand of the Father. This same Jesus, he says, you crucified. He breaks it full circle. They may have been the ones holding the hammer and the nails. They, they may have been the ones that called out for Jesus' crucifixion, but make no mistake, we're as guilty as they are. We're as guilty as they are. We're guilty because all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. We know that we face eternal death because the Bible tells us that the wages of that sin in our life is death, eternal death, separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. But aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that God preordained to send His only begotten Son to die upon a cross for your sins, to be placed into a tomb and to rise three days later that you might have life. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad He has a plan? And see, He tells us that plan is eternal life, that the gift of God is eternal life. He tells us that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should never perish but will have eternal life. I'm so glad God has a plan. I'm so glad that God has a plan. What must you do to be a part of that plan? You must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God did what? Raised him from the dead. And he says, and you will be saved. See, the hinge point of Christianity is a living Savior. It's a living Savior. It's not good enough that you believe he just died for your sins. You must believe that the power of God raised him from the dead that you might have eternal life. For without a risen Savior, 
you only have eternal death. It's the only thing you have. Do you stand before God today in your own self-righteousness or the self-righteousness of God through a risen Savior whose name is Jesus Christ? See, God, it says in that 36th verse, made him both Lord and Christ. Christ, another term for Messiah, translated often to say Savior. He was Christ that you might be saved from your sins. But he's also Lord. He's King. If he's Savior in your life, he must also be Lord in your life. You cannot separate those two things. For those who have never come to make a profession of faith that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose three days later that you might have eternal life, it starts with him being Christ in your life. If you haven't made that profession today, in just a few minutes I'll give you the opportunity to come and I'll explain that to you. But for those of us who have made that decision, we must realize that he must also be Lord in our life. Lord in our life. The example we started with of Peter is a beautiful example of the Lordship of Christ and the life of a believer. There may be ups, there may be downs. But the saving Christ should be the Lord of your life, should be the direction of your life, should be the decision maker in your life, should be the power in your life. It's not good enough to say, my ticket's been punched, heaven is going to be my home. No. It says, even though your ticket is punched, Jesus Christ must be Lord of your life today. My question to you is this. Even if you do know Him as your Savior, is He truly Lord? Does He rule and reign over your life? Are all the decisions that you make based on, is it for the glory of God and my Savior, Jesus Christ? If not, this morning you can ask for forgiveness of those sins, trusting in the fact that God will forgive you of that sin in your life. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.